I really enjoy your podcast because it kind of builds confidence. There's a lot of people out there from the 20s, 30s, 40s, and obviously you've interviewed people 50s and 60s that that we all have a common mindset. And your podcast kind of lets us reiterate to each other what we're thinking and that it validates it. We're all correct. And if I could talk to a 30-year-old, I would say, listen to the advice and the experiences coming out of this podcast. Aggressively build your career. Uh, maximize your income to the furthest of your ability. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Alrighty, Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 115. Jace, Happy New Year. How are you? Hey, Happy New Year to you. Doing great. How are you doing? Good, good. Had a nice break, and, and now I guess it's going to go into a busier January, but nice to relax for a little bit. Got a couple of days of skiing in, saw family, so very enjoyable. Good stuff. So real quick here, we were talking before the show about, since it's the end of the year, about annual returns, and the NASDAQ was a little bit higher this year, I believe, right, than the S&P. But yep. this year, the S&P, 28.88 annual percent change. 2018, just for, for a summary here, was negative 6.24, so dropped 6.24. And then the average over the last 10 years was about 11.8%, just over 11.8% annual return on the S&P. And so... We were talking before the show that if some if one had invested all of their money since two thousand what nine or ten in the S and P, they will have tripled their money. Yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting to think about. You know, we talk about the rule of seventy two in finance, basically how long it'll take for our money to double. And, you know, in this last decade, granted we've been on quite the bull run, you would have been able to three X your money. So that's if you put let's just say you had a million dollars, put it in the S and P in two thousand ten, today it'd be worth three million bucks. Yeah, pretty interesting. So sum up, what's the rule of 72? Sum that up for somebody who may not be familiar with it. Yeah, so you take 72 divided by what you think your average annual return will be. So let's just say it's going to be 10% for easy math. And that basically comes out to be 7.2. So your money will double in 7.2 years. So if you think about, you know, somebody's working life, let's just say they're working for like 30 years, maybe 35 years. You know, and they're going to double it. Let's say they get an average return at 10%. They're going to double their money every 7.2 years. You know, roughly you're going to be looking at anywhere from four to five doubling periods, basically, that your money will double. Yeah, so pretty crazy. And it makes you start thinking about, right, or at least in the last 10 years, right, what what return did you get or what return did one get? And would they have been better off of just sticking it in an S&P index fund? And then, of course, going forward, what's that average return going to be, right? I think we talked about this the last couple shows and, and what had some other guests on that, that shared their thoughts on returns. But, you know, obviously no way to know, but just interesting looking back the 10 years that one would have averaged 11.8% annual return. And obviously it's been, you know, a, a, an amazing market the last 10 years and who knows what will happen the next 10 or the next two, but just an interesting perspective. Yeah, you know, I think I think it's an interesting thing to kind of discuss too and, and think about, you know, we had David on. David talked about having kind of a slower growth in the future of returns, you know, maybe in the 6%, 7% returns. And we've seen these years like this last year where it's been 28%, which is just crazy. But, you know, in general, what point in the future do we slow down? You know, I don't know. I'm, you know, I don't know about your company, Clark, but 
we don't ever try to not grow, right? So I think just in general, you know, these companies that are driving some of these values and stock prices, maybe they are overvalued for what kind of cash flow they're going to be able to generate. But at the end of the day, like everybody's still trying to grow their business, try to grow their company and some won't work out. Some will work out. Some will be home runs like an Amazon type company, you know, or maybe even bigger than a home run in that case, because that stock has gone, you know, bonkers since the, the time it, you know, IPO'd. But I think it's just interesting to think about that, you know, what kind of return can you expect? How do you plan around what kind of return you're going to expect? And at the end of the day, I mean, I think it, you just got to keep investing, right? Like you don't know, you don't have a crystal ball, you don't know what that future is going to be. But the history has told us that more likely than not, you're better off investing than putting your cash in, under a mattress or, you know, in a, in a savings sure. account, even if it's a high yield savings account. Yeah, I agree with you too, that there'll be constant innovation, right? And, and changes and perhaps people are overvaluing things now, but th- that'll constantly change and, and maybe it's not. Right. I mean, how do, how do we know? Maybe what we thought was overvalued isn't in five, 10 years, or maybe it's even more overvalued if you look at it that way. So anyway, just interesting stats. So just to summarize last week's episode, we had Tom. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that, it was a great episode. He's a business owner, a counselor, author, and consultant. Also what it takes to be successful in small business and, and also added a really great perspective on learning from your mistakes. On today's show, we have a, a great episode. Really excited for it. It's with a firefighter from NYC. He discussed both his career path and investing story. He has a current net worth of about $1.4 million and has a, just an amazing story, one that includes a couple of side hustles and passive income from his side hustles. So a really great, great story with him. If you're looking to read more and better yourself in 2020, or do you have an ever-growing list of books you want to read? Well, our new sponsor, BookNotes, can help. BookNotes knows that you don't have enough time, money, or patience to read all the books you've been wanting to. That's why they created short, easy-to-read or listen-to summaries that help you learn, grow, and excel in your career and life. The summaries take an average of 5 to 15 minutes to consume and are a quick and easy way to get a base understanding of a book before you buy it, both from fiction and nonfiction categories like finance, love, career, happiness, and health to documentary. Each summary highlights the key ideas of each title. BookNotes adds new content weekly, including top sellers and trending books from each category. I've personally used BookNotes and listened to the summaries of The Millionaire Next Door, Grit by Angela Duckworth, and Rich Dad Poor Dad. So try BookNotes free for seven days. Download the app and get access to hundreds of summaries of best-selling and new released books. We appreciate everyone listening to the show, but without any further delay, let's get into today's episode with Chris. Chris, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and kind of what you're up to now? Sure. I am 40 years old. I'm a firefighter in uh, the city of New York. I have been employed there for about 15 years or so. My wife also works in the city. Uh, she works for a large financial firm, um, commuting to and from every day uh, to work, which takes its toll a little bit. But we have our two children, a very young daughter and a little bit older son. He's he's about four years old. We have them in daycare a couple times a week. So a lot of the days uh, that I'm not at work, I'm doing daddy daycare at home. I also own uh, a couple small businesses on the side, um, all work from home type businesses that I can take with me. And I've had those for uh, many years as well that have helped contribute to our network. Awesome. And what's your net worth today? We're right around... 
we do not include certain uh, valuations in that amount. Uh, we don't include our business accounts, like cash in our business accounts. Our business valuation is not included in that. We value our house at the purchase price, um, so we're not tracking the market with that. And we also don't include any um, uh, present value calculations for our uh, pension, for my pension through uh, the department. Wow. So what, what's kind of the makeup of the 1.4 then? Well, I would say we have about $220,000 in equity in our home. Between my retirement plans, 457 401ks, and my wife's 401k at work, uh, we have 460000 roughly. There is a program that allows me to contribute an excess amount to our pension program. Um, at a, they kind of guarantee a, a certain rate of return. Um, if you do that, and it's a safe kind of investment. Um, I have about two hundred and five thousand in that at the moment. Taxable brokerage accounts, maybe one eighty to two hundred, depending on uh, you know the month or so. Um, and then between investments that I've done alongside of some of my businesses, um, we have about a hundred thousand in that. And then I have uh, some crypto holdings that were unexpectedly kind of. Elevated, and that's that's right around ninety thousand. But I include those only because I'm holding those long term. I I don't expect a lot out of those. Although that whole crypto boom kind of caught me by surprise, as it did a lot of people, I think. Um, and then we hold around eighty thousand in cash. Wow. And and is the money that you've got in your four hundred one k's and your four fifty seven are those invested in the markets and bonds, stocks, mutual funds? Kind of what's the, the makeup? There? Yeah. So. Right. So like, like a lot of 401k plans, 457 plans, we're, we're limited. Um, we get what they give us and, and they don't give us a Vanguard or anything like that. Ultimately, I end up just including, uh, like the, their general S&P 500 market or, or their bond fund or something like that. Um, so we have approximately 90% in the equivalent of S&P 500 and about 10% in bonds across the 401k and 457 um, allocated there. And then uh, some of the other accounts I'll do just track like a target date fund, you know, like the 2030 or 2040 fund, depending on kind of how we're targeting that particular fund. For example, in my one of my taxable brokerage accounts, we're using that as we call it, my wife and I call it, our early mortgage paydown fund. And when we bought the house that we bought, we agreed that we would take a 30-year mortgage, but to kind of help build us a buffer, both an emergency fund type aspect, as well as just a regular buffer in case, you know, she lost her job or we had to make a change, anything that can come down the pipe um, as you're getting older. We said that we would save a minimum into this fund of what the equivalent of a 15-year mortgage would be. So we've been doing that. And then we have that conservatively invested as well um, with a target date fund to kind of target, hey, it, after 15 years, we would like to have the option. So if we can get, you know, 5%, 6% out of this particular allocation, that'd be great. And then we have the option uh, after 15 years to say, do you want just want to pay off the mortgage now? We can. Else, maybe we'll go and invest that somewhere else. Yeah, no, no, makes sense. It's kind of an interesting way to, to approach it. I don't know that we've had somebody on the show that, that's done it that way. Well, it's a multi-purpose kind of yeah. uh, approach. It's, it's something where... Um, I think as your net worth grows, as you become more comfortable, you know, if you're starting out and you have a negative net worth or you're starting out on, on this path, which is, you know, an aggressive wealth accumulation, you know, you hear a lot of chatter uh, about, hey, emergency fund, emergency fund. And it, it's 100 percent accurate. You do need the ability to buffer. However, depending on your view of that. And, and my view is that an emergency is a true emergency, you know, uh, medical bills, uh, loss of job, uh, sudden, you know, 
catastrophic failure of the heating system in your home or anything along those lines. Well, you know, credit cards are there that you can pull from. You will have frequently the ability to take money from friends or family to kind of help get through certain periods of time. That's when things are very, very tight. And my wife and I decided that as we kind of left that area and our, our net worth slowly started to grow, we started to get some cash in our accounts where our free cash could kind of act as an emergency buffer that we would say, no, you know what, let's go ahead and kind of put that emergency cash buffer to work and let's go ahead and invest it in the markets. As it grows, it's only going to become more of a buffer. But the purpose being is that at any point in time, we can take that. And in our case, we said, we'll put it to paying down the house. And it's okay if it fluctuates. It's okay if over the course of 5, 10, 15 years, that fluctuates. That's what we're expecting with the uh, kind of hope slash expectation. We're going to end up with a positive return somewhere around that 5 or 6% a year. Nothing crazy, but something that outpaces the mortgage um, interest rate that we're paying on the home. So let's let's back up here a little bit. Have you always maxed out your retirement accounts? What's kind of been your approach in putting money in there versus putting money in maybe this slush fund call it or investing in your businesses? What's kind of been the mindset dividing between those? Yeah, so so no, I didn't always max out um, the 401k that I have available or the 457. Um, my wife did. Um, it, it, that was before we got married, and then even after she was able to do that. And, and largely that uh, kind of went from, I guess, just our outlook on finances. She was uh, very money smart in the sense of a saver, naturally. I was naturally a saver, although I was more risky in some of my ventures in terms of business or you know investments or that sort of thing. But she was able to max out very early. Instead, what I did is I took advantage of that kind of guaranteed excess payment into our pension that allowed me to maintain that guaranteed rate of return. Now, part of that was also because of the 2000s. You know, you go through some of the crashes, um, you know, in, in the 2000s, whether it was a tech boom, whether it was, you know, 2008, and you kind of see the value of maintaining uh, lower volatility trajectory. But also part of that was simply because I knew that I wanted to kind of take advantage of the pension system first and then start filling in uh, once I kind of had built some businesses, um, which was the focus at the time. So long story short, I only started to max out my side of things, which is my 457. I would say uh, eight years ago or so is when on my side um, income started going to that. Other than that, it was always saving into brokerage funds, saving into the business, putting money back into the business, that sort of thing. Gotcha. Yeah, it's interesting as you guys were talking about, yeah, you're you're a little bit limited in your in your investment options, right? Yes, with, that's with right. The funds they give you, and and I think that's. It happens to a lot of people, right? A lot of the guys that we have are girls that are in education, right? Those that work in government. And then even, I mean, both Jason and I, when we worked in accounting, it was that same way. We were limited by what we could invest in. Yeah. And it's client wise. So I'm a little cynical when it comes to that. Um, Yeah. Same. You know, it's, it's this day and age, it's so available now for them to offer wider plans. But instead, I think there's a certain amount of. it, that that will change. I have hopes. I see it in the marketplace already. But I think the system is entrenched in that these uh, plan providers, yeah. whether it's the fees that they charge at the back end, whether it's just the relationships that they have, take a long time, you know, for somebody new to come in and kind of shake up um, the way things are done. 
But it is, it's very frustrating for teachers, you know, police, firefighters, we're all kind of caught in the same boat. And I yeah, think the lucky yeah. ones have a, a lot of flexibility. Would you invest differently if you had different options or, I mean, s no. index is, you know. I know. So, no. Uh, and this is why I have a, a little bit of philosophy in terms of the approach. And, and that's where my focus isn't on nitpick at the moment is not on nitpicking the allocation. The S and P 500 is starting to make me uh, a little concerned. I'm, I'm starting to look at uh, diversifying the portfolio, maybe more globally and having a little bit more of a mix other than just your standard stock and bond mix. However, I don't nitpick that and I don't do it yet because our focus is on accumulation at the moment. Um, we have a 50% savings rate. Uh, my wife and I, uh, aggressively, wow. not to the point of, you know, uh, we're not uh, making our children eat wheat every day. You know, no, it's nothing like that. But we do forego uh, a lot of things that that I think anybody else in our position, new cars, you know, sure. expensive vacations, things like that, where these large chunks of change we can save and we take advantage of any matching you know, that's available to us. And we end up with about a 50% savings rate. And because of that, that's my focus. It's essentially accumulate as much as possible, make sure that we're invested, you know, safely. Um, and then as we get older, we'll start to kind of scale back oh, maybe the aggressiveness a little bit and we'll start to diversify uh, further into some of these, uh, you know, other asset classes. So have you always been that aggressive or is that kind of picked up in the last five, 10 years? No, I, I would say I was much more aggressive than my younger years before, mm. uh, especially being single. And that was simply a, a, a individual pursuit. I was interested in the stock market. I was interested in real estate. I had gone out on a limb and purchased a couple townhomes in kind of a rough area um, on the East Coast and ended up, you know, kind of trying my hand at the real estate side, the, the personal uh, real estate side of things. I taught myself options trading simply because I was interested in how it worked. You know, the, the stock allocation, trying to maybe do a little bit of day trading, nothing I would say crazy, just something out of curiosity. So I would say over the course of the years, I've been more aggressive and it's been more of like an educational process where I've gone out and I've learned these things. And that's kind of come back to, to realize, well, hey, listen, you know, as you really want to protect your wealth, grow your wealth, the books like Random Walk Down Wall Street is not wrong. That is 100% accurate. And if you're in a position like me, I'm not a CEO of a large company. I'm not pulling down a windfall paycheck. I have to toe the line and stick to the script. High savings rate, a reliable kind of portfolio investment strategy that's going to return an expected rate of return over the long term. And so long as I stick to that, I will end up, I will end just fine. And my net worth kind of speaks to that a little bit. I've never had a large windfall. My wife and I stay on the same page. I know personally, I know that the biggest expenses that you could probably incur personally are things like sudden medical catastrophic, you know, illness and divorce. And, and those, if you can avoid those things for the long term, your chance of success, um, in terms of building uh, a nice retirement life for yourself is much greater. And that's, that's kind of how I go by. My wife buys into that as well. Nice. Nice. Well, good for you guys. You've obviously been successful. So I, I, I want to come back and talk about your small business, but just to take a step sure. back here, give us, or, you know, all of us listeners included here, a little insight into career as a firefighter. And as much as you're comfortable sharing, maybe what's your schedule like and, and what's the pay like? What can one expect? 
Well, living in a you know high cost of living area, whether that's Boston, uh, New York City, Washington D.C., or parts of Washington D.C., um, San Francisco, L.A., any any sort of public servant in those areas will command a higher salary than somewhere else in the country. Uh, that's that's number one. Is what may sound um, kind of like making a lot of money here as a firefighter, say anywhere between ninety and one hundred and five thousand here in New York City. Someone listening to that from Louisiana may their head may explode, but here in New York City, that is it's it's a little it becomes difficult to yeah. raise a family. Cost of living, yep, right, exactly. So so that that's that's one thing. I mean, from from a scheduling perspective, from a life perspective, it's an extremely rewarding career. Uh, anybody who stays in these types of careers knows that. That's why it commands uh, such high demand. You know, if, if New York City were to give a test, um, there would be people, you know, tens of thousands of people lining up to take that test. It's a very rewarding career. The schedule can be a little demanding. Uh, on the average, I think you work end up working some 48 hours a week, I think it might be. Maybe it's 46 um, on average, and that is you work night tours as part of that. So you could be working anywhere from, uh, you know, six at night until nine in the morning shift. You could be working nine in the morning until six at night. Um, sometimes you can combine that and you end up working 24 hours straight. So <clears throat> although I'm not commuting five days a week or seven days a week even to my job, um, it kind of takes its toll. You, you know, you're, you're trying to, like I said before, I'm doing daddy daycare and I'm exhausted because I worked the night before. Uh, those sorts of things do. And, and I think that's where knowing that we have good health care, knowing that we have a pension system. And although it's beating up our bodies a bit, our younger bodies and, you know, uh, we're exposing ourselves to things that could either injure us or in the long term, especially uh, make us more susceptible to cancer illnesses and that it's a little bit of peace of mind. And I'm OK with that risk reward trade off. So do you have any input on your schedules as you get further along in the career or, or not at all? No, you do. And and that comes in the form of simply trying to say if you need off for your kid's soccer game, you go to other members you're working with and you ask, can anybody cover a tour for you or cover a shift for you? Um, and then you pay that back in kind. So there's a little bit of a kind of equity that gets built there where you know, yeah. if you're somebody who's always taking, 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 uh, they don't always look too favorably on that. Sure. But, you know, if not, it's it's just fine. You're usually able to kind of navigate that and, and get off when you need to get off. And then, you know, you still have to kind of pay that back when somebody else needs something. Yeah. So first year firefighter, obviously, it's different in different locations. But what can one expect to make about? Uh, here in New York City, I believe it's pretty low. I'm going to say it's right around $40,000. It might be a little bit below that, um, especially your first year. I think it might be maybe closer to 35. And like a lot of civil servant ventures these days uh, or, or jobs these days, uh, they've stretched out the, the pay increases. So I think New York City now has a pay increase at the firefighter rank. I think it goes from it's really that fifth year uh, when they get the major pay bump. Um, so you might go little bumps like 40 to, say, 45 to 52 to 60. But then... Come that after that fifth year, you get a bump up to, I think it's around 90. Okay. That's good. And then between some other overtime or promotion opportunities, it can go, you know, above a uh, hundred, um, north of 110. Gotcha. Gotcha. So let's circle back to these side businesses. Yep. I know you said you, you bought some townhomes early, but you, you also said you have a side business and an online business. What are those? And, and maybe how did those get started? 
Sure. So in college, um, uh, another uh, friend of mine, uh, we kind of, at the time I was working as an EMT, um, part-time, just as a side job while putting myself through school. And I came across a friend who we kind of linked up and, and we realized that there was a need in the, in some fire departments and EMS organizations for just getting messages out to their members. At the time, I mean, this is back in, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s, and you're still on pager technology back then. Ultimately, what ended up developing was a system that went forward and ended up linking with 911 systems, being able to disseminate emergency response information out to people who may be responding. And that just grew. It's a subscription-based business. We built it um, always web-based, and it kind of perpetuated into a few other smaller uh, ventures, things like maybe shift scheduling or um, you know, certain types of uh, you know inspection appointment scheduling, that sort of thing. But ultimately, it's a recurring source of income that comes in, and that I think contributes about forty-five thousand dollars a year um, to my salary. Um, wow. My business partner takes about the same, and then a small amount gets billed every year. Um, so it's been very reliable um, in the earlier years. I mean, I spent a lot of late nights up, whether it was programming or managing servers or figuring out problems or customer support. Um, a lot of times in the daytime, just taking phone calls randomly um, throughout the day, working at the home office. As time has gone on, I purposefully scaled that back. Uh, I was talking uh, with my my brother-in-law's father. The other a uh, couple weeks ago, and he, he kind of put it through. He's like, "That's a lifestyle business." He's like, "You built yourself a lifestyle business. You took you took a lot of early hard work, a lot of risk, and then you build a business that now you're able to spend less time on, and you're kind of reaping the rewards of that, yet still getting the dividends from it." So every day, I still do a, a, an amount of work to it, a couple hours a day. Um, some days more if there's an issue or troubleshooting, you know, the system or whatever it is. But ultimately, I've scaled that back. Purpose, you know, I have two young kids. I have a wife. I have other focuses that I want to make sure I, I, I put my attention to. Wow, good for you! It's pretty amazing. I mean, if you guys are pulling ninety thousand dollars a year out of that as a side gig, it's pretty amazing. And and I, it's I think that comes in. I mean, I'm a person who, I mean, for the past twenty years, I've been tracking my my income and my expenses in Quicken, and and I could bring up today exactly my net worth. I can I track. You know, even from my wallet, roughly where I'm spending my money. If I go to the store and I spend eight dollars on something, the next time I'm sitting down, I try to recall that and I plug that right into uh, into Quicken, and 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 then that really kind of gives uh, it translates over to the business in the sense that I'm the same way when I run our business finances. I'm tracking everything. If something's happening and I don't know about it, it bothers me. And and the, it really boils down to because if I'm sitting at the end of the year and I'm looking at a large balance that I can't account for, I look at that as as bad data. Can't make decisions if you don't know what you're doing. And at the end of the year, my wife and I can sit down. Or at the end of the year, me and my business partners can sit down and we can say, look, you know, on the business side, we spend $35,000 in, you know, hosting fees or or business service fees, you know, anything like that. Is there a way we can scale that back? My wife and I can go do the same thing. We can say, Hey, look, you know, we went, we went to, uh, we went out to eat, you know, this many times last year. Do you, which ones do you remember? And then we kind of use that to say, well, look, maybe we won't order Thai food as much. <laughs> you know, we're going to just go ahead and treat ourselves to nicer dinners right. out if we're not going to remember those. And on the business side, it translates as well. So being able to pull that cash out is, I think, a direct correlation to knowing what's going on in the business and trying to keep expenses as reasonably low as possible. 
You've kind of got an accountant side in you, Chris. I, I I do, although I tell you this, I had to turn my taxes over about five or six years ago <laughs> because <laughs> I was getting to the point where I just I was like, this is beyond me. Uh, my wife's, uh, you know, she's more of an accountant than I am, although she can't stand it either. So, you know, there's a certain limit that I reach, and yeah. I think that's that actionable limit. <laughs> How much do you pay to have your taxes done? Just curious. It's it's relatively inexpensive. I would say, um, and I use an off-site person. There's nobody local here. It's We communicate through the internet solely. Um, I would say my personal is right around five to six hundred uh, a year, uh, although I it might go up this year just because of a few extra business returns that have to get done or K-1s that have to get passed back through. Uh-huh. Um, on the business side, however, I think it's a little bit more than that. I think it's around 1200 to 1500 per return, depending on, on the exact business. Sure, sure. So do you guys talk about you and, and those that you work with in the fire station? Do you guys talk about personal finance or is it is it not really talked about as much? So it is, um, in terms of individuals, not so much. Generally, um, there's something very, very wonderful about the fire department is that every tour, uh, at least twice a day, people are coming in, uh, exchanging information. They're checking the equipment. They're checking the apparatus. They're checking their gear. But during that process, there's a lot of discussion and we call it the kitchen table, but it could happen anywhere. Um, ultimately over the course of the tour, you're spending a lot of time together. So you can have anywhere from five to 14 guys and girls all communicating. So topics like finance end up coming up, A guy's having a hard time or, you know, you, you hear like there was a, a guy I worked with several months ago, his wife's father, who was estranged, ended up dying and, and leaving them, um, some money, nothing, nothing life changing, but it was a substantial sum of money. And then the discussion came up. What can you do with that? So if the discussion's happening, it's usually more general. I personally am not disclosing my financial situation to them, um, although I do try to contribute as much as I know um, to the conversations I can. Of course, you know, that comes with its own pitfalls. You know, sometimes guys like to talk about trading Iraqi dinars or cryptocurrency, and you, yeah, just, yeah. you just have to step aside at that point. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. just circling back to your allocation, I know we talked about this a little bit at the beginning. You're, you're really well diversified, right? You have home equity, obviously. You have a 457. You have this pension plan that we haven't really talked about, but obviously pension plan, you have taxable brokerage accounts, you have these small business accounts, you have a 529, you have about $90,000 in crypto and cash, and then obviously your cars and, and some other things. Yes. How did you come to this allocation? Is this something you really thought about? Is this something that just happened? And then going forward, is this an allocation you expect will change? I do expect it to change. Um, how I came to it, it was never a definitive plan. I think that's going to be the next phase of my life. I think as I get closer to a possible retirement or a possible point where I say, okay, time to scale things back, I think at that point, the allocation will turn into, like I, like I said before, a little bit more diversified across um, multiple asset classes. Uh, right now, uh, the only way that that's being done is probably through a target date type fund. Um, but at the moment, uh, the, like the nine, I'll just use it as a 90 10 stock bond split. I would say that happened purely from the belief that you need to stay invested in the stock market if you want a chance at keeping pace and keeping pace with inflation and having 
uh, a further positive expectancy of, of, of like a rate of return. Inflation, um, without a doubt, will cut into your long-term projections. It's personally just a little pet peeve of mine when I read kind of the clickbait financial media, and, and they refer to this is what you have to do to turn you know a hundred thousand dollars into a million, and, and they'll give some market projection, you know, whether it's seven or ten percent. Um, but ultimately, they always, almost always fail to mention that their calculations do not factor in the, the constant, you know, inflation, you know, kind of devil who, who takes from all of us every year that goes by. So I would say that's more the driving factor as we're accumulating wealth. Um, it wasn't a, a specific plan to kind of reach that point. So, Chris, you've got this great net worth and you've got these side businesses and stuff. What's kept you being a firefighter along this? Why not pursue those businesses or why not essentially take that income? Why have you still gone to, to work as a firefighter? Passion. I, I mean, I really, really enjoy it. Um, and it's a challenge. Uh, by far, it's a challenge. Uh, you know, you it, it, may not, it may not be apparent from the outside, um, but a lot of these public sector um, careers come with it uh, more of an innate challenge. It's not as simple as just showing up to an emergency, whatever that may be. It, it goes into a lot of preparation behind the scenes um, and and kind of pre-planning scenarios, and then when those scenarios happen, executing and then evaluating it. And and I love that process. So whether that's knowing the correct position that I'm supposed to be at, um, or I'm supposed to quote unquote make, if a a, a large H-type building caught on fire in, in the Bronx, or whether that's a private dwelling fire in, in Queens, it, it changes the dynamic of how your job is supposed to play out. And lo- knowing that, learning it, and doing it well is something that I enjoy a lot. Um, that's on the personal side, you know, maintaining physical fitness, um, the camaraderie. Those are all irreplaceable elements that kind of go into wanting to remain in the department. On the financial side of things, on the life side of things, it is a reliable job that I can count on, that I know has my back, even though I'm exposing myself to higher rates of injury, illness, and even life expectancy in the long run. Although I think that's manageable if you're aware of them. So so from that uh, point of view, the business I look at is risky. I don't know when that could go away. The technology may change, and in a flash, that goes away. Um, although, you know, $45,000 that I'm pulling out per year is absolutely excellent. I love it. I look at that kind of as found money. It's, it's, it's lucky money. And I need to take every day kind of expecting that that's going to go away and, and plan for the future if it's not going to be there. So my wife also, you know, we're raising a young family. Um, we've talked about the possibility of, of her, um, stopping to work and, and just coming home and then adding that element of flexibility into our lives that that comes with. And if we make that decision, um, just trying to build the business the way I see it, I don't think I would be able to replace her income. I don't think I'd be able to replace the firefighter's income. So I don't want to take that risk. Yeah, no, that's all that makes sense. So Chris, I just want to kind of, kind of get into your head a little bit. Yep. Some of the things that, that maybe you've would see as mistakes you've made along the way, maybe share those with our audience and maybe couple that with maybe some advice that you would give to, to somebody who's just kind of starting out. You mean financial mistakes? So like uh, anything that, yeah. uh, yeah, sure, sure. So, so I mean, we I, could, we could get into life mistakes as well if you want. Yeah, I mean, whatever. <laughs> or maybe a mistake you made on the job, you know? I mean, you're, you're I'm just teasing. Right. You do right. life so, or death every day and there's probably some stuff you're like, man, I wish I would have gone that way instead of that way or whatever. I don't know. 
Absolutely, totally. So, you know, these are hard questions. Uh, I, I've had, I've tried to have this before, and, and you know, I look at mistakes kind of like, well, like it's only really a mistake if you if you don't correct from it, or or like you you don't learn from them because because I think like everything builds on for future opportunities. So <clears throat> I, I'll give you some examples. Um, so when I was younger, I you know, I was doing some of the day trading. I was doing some of the options trading. Um, I found it fascinating. I was teaching myself. I lost money doing some of those. I mean, I made some and I, I lost some, but as a whole, I lost. And would I look at that as a mistake? I, I don't think so. Um, would I have more net worth today? And I could debate that with you. I could say, I could say, well, I, I guess I would if I hadn't lost that money. However, what other mistakes have I avoided simply by the knowledge and the experience of going through that process? So I can't really say that that was a mistake. I, I, I will say that there was one purchase, um, that I made and it was, it was more impulsive than I am typically. But when kind of my business was younger and started to produce uh, reliable cash flow every month, I, I ended up taking like the first like $800 in that cash flow and I bought like a large truck. You know, and so like, here's $800 a month going to this large truck. And I look at that as kind of being like, well, that was silly. Why, why in the world would I have done that? But I tell you this, I still drive the truck. I love the truck. And if I hadn't had done that kind of pseudo whimsical purchase, maybe that would have festered inside and caused me to do something else. So, so in terms of like big, large financial mistakes, um, I've, I've definitely made plenty in terms of picking the wrong stock or maybe not being as aggressive as I should have been, or maybe being too aggressive when, um, you know, when, when the signs were there with the 2008, you know, stock market crash. Here I am, you know, I'm just putting more and more money to work at the time and my network just keeps dropping, but we all see how over the next several years that kind of played out. So, you know, you ended up getting ahead if you were doing that sort of move. So I think making big mistakes, I don't like to call them that. I like to try to learn from them the best that I can. I'm, I'm trying to think. I would say even the the townhomes that I purchased, they they were rough. It was a rough go for a while. I ended up being about break even. Um, I sold one for a profit. I sold one for a loss. During the course of that time frame, um, I had tenants in and out on a regular basis, evictions, whether going in and making repairs. But even that, like that I looked at at the time was painful and it didn't play out the way I thought it was. And that was fresh off of reading, you know, the Robert Kiyosaki's, the, you know, kind of these uh, real estate ways of building wealth. But I tell you this, that made me so well versed. And it was such a minor amount of money compared to where we are today that I have no doubt I'm further ahead because of that experience. So I, I really can't say that there was some mistake that just absolutely leveled me. You know, I'm not a Vegas gambler. I, I don't go out on, on multi-day benders. You know, it's, it's, it, they're not mistakes like that. I think, uh, you know, if anything, there's, there's certain decisions that I've made in my life that have absolutely led me to where I am today because of maybe the quote unquote mistakes that I had gone through in the past and learned from. Yeah, well, you have a you have a good mindset and a good attitude about it too. You know, learning about something and, and not making it a mistake or, or viewing it as a a lesson, right? What about what about advice to a thirty year old? I think you gave a really good answer here on on the notes you wrote us before the show. Yeah, so so this is again goes into my mindset. I'm not that far away from where I was thirty. That was only ten years ago, and I think you really just have to focus on your career and maximizing your income. 
I think your podcast, uh, I really enjoy your podcast because it kind of builds confidence. There's a lot of people out there from the 20s, 30s, 40s, and obviously you've interviewed people 50s and 60s that that we all have a common mindset. And your podcast kind of lets us reiterate to each other what we're thinking and that it validates it. We're all correct. And if I could talk to a 30-year-old, I would say, listen to the advice and the experiences coming out of this podcast. Aggressively build your career. Uh, maximize your income to the furthest of your ability. If you're somebody who has landed a several hundred thousand dollar a year job out of college, realize the opportunity you're sitting on. If you're somebody who has not done that, realize that you can. You may have to do lateral transfers. You may have to live uncomfortably for a little bit in terms of switching cities. Um, you may have to ask a little bit more out of your family. But focus on maximizing your in- income and driving down your expenses because that ultimately ends up with a high rate of savings. And it's the high rate of savings for the average person that makes the biggest long-term impact. It's not some speculative stock that you're going to pick that's suddenly going to save you. It's not the lottery. It's not um, you know a magical book that you pick up and it's going to teach you how to sell better. It's just maintaining a high rate of savings over the long run and everything else kind of works itself out. I think you had a, a, a guest on, uh, I'm going to say it was several months ago, um, but all of a sudden, I forget her name and her, the exact circumstance, but all of a sudden she ended up with this incredibly large net worth and she was like, how did that happen? And, yeah. and, and that's the point is it just happens. It doesn't feel like it when you're 30, you're, you're grinding, you're more likely to take risks and that's okay. So long as they're small, but, just maximize the income, keep the expenses low, and that's a personal decision. You know, some people might be fine eating ramen noodles. Other people might just like to keep their expenses low in the sense of having a roommate, but keep them low, save the, save the rest. Yeah, that was Diane episode number, episode 99, where, where she was like, look, I, I just invest and I had a million or two and I put it in the bank and I forgot about it and it grew, right? And yeah, she, had, yeah. she had four or five million. And that's what happened. We don't know when it's going to happen because of the stock market. Um, and it can be a prolonged period of time. I think you read the statistics and they'll say, you know, it took this long for after the Great Depression, you know, it's maybe 20 years for it to come back. I think that's a little extreme. I think, you know, 2008 is another extreme, how quickly it came back after 2008. But the bottom line is over the long term, one day the market will just start clicking away. It kind of has been recently. Yeah. So, Chris, thanks. I appreciate all the advice and, and everything you shared. I just want to wrap up here with some rapid fire questions and, and then we'll, we'll let you go. So. What's the most expensive jeans or pair of pants you've ever purchased? Um, I would say right around $50. I, I tend to go on Amazon these days. And even when I went to the mall as a younger uh, younger man, I think Gap, you know, I would shop at Gap and yeah. a, a 40 to $50 pair of jeans. Okay. What about shoes? That can be a little more expensive. I, I, I've maintained a very uh, kind of active lifestyle. So whether it was a pair of running shoes for $120, uh, you know, that, that, I know I'm going to get a lot of mileage out of, or, you know, it might be uh, a, a different pair of uh, like nice dress shoes. I would say, yeah. I would say right around a hundred to 120 probably. Okay. What about a car? Oh, that's that truck. Uh, so I think the equivalent of that was somewhere around 48,000 at the time. Um, I, I don't think I'll ever uh, do that again. I think used is the way to go. My last car was a used car and I think just let somebody else have the depreciation. I'll just grab it a few years later. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Most expensive meal out that you've personally paid for? Well, it is New York City. Um, and the food here is outstanding. I, uh, I would say between my wife and I, I'll limit it that as opposed to a group of friends. Um, I would say, I think my wife and I had a bill that was 270 once. I think we had a bottle of wine and, and, 
it was, oh man, it was delicious. But that was a one-time affair uh, before we had kids. What item or items or experiences are worth spending more money on to you? This is something that I, I'm having difficulty doing myself, but it's an aspiration. I think exchanging money for time um, is something well worth it. If you're somebody who wants to have a maid or you want to have lawn service, you know, and you can afford it, I think, I think that can go a long way. A lot of times I can find myself doing house chores instead of taking my kids to the park and, and that weighs on me. And I know it's only going to continue to weigh on me as my kids get older. So number one would be, would be that if you're exchanging money for quality time, um, I think that's great. And right in that same line, I think experiences are what we all remember at the end of the day or at the end of the year, it's always comes back to the experience. It's rarely that material object. Like my phone may be outstanding and I may love using it. Um, but ultimately I'm really not thinking fondly back to the time I used my phone. I'm thinking fondly back to the time that I decided to go, you know, do a, a getaway in the city with my wife and we went out and spent $270. Yeah. What age were you when you hit your first million when you became a millionaire? Oh, geez. You know what? I can tell you, uh, hold on. I have Quicken right here and I can tell you the, uh, just looking at the little chart there. Um, it was not that long ago, um, within the past several years here. So roughly that would have been, that would have been late 2017. So I would, that's, yeah, I think, uh, 37, 38. Okay. Yep. Do you have a predicted retirement, uh, or net worth goal or cash flow goal or, Anything like that? I don't, although I have an effort goal. And when my kids start getting to that age of uh, middle school, uh, middle school to high school, um, where they're very involved in different activities, I want to be able to make a lot. Um, my effort towards any of my business ventures on the side um, will scale back significantly. And I'll start to look at um, scaling back even whether being a firefighter or encouraging my wife to come back, I know we're going to be okay. You know, it's kind of like when you start to build wealth, financial wealth gives you freedom. It gives you freedom of choice. When you are in debt, uh, when you don't have any savings, when you're not um, having anything planned for the future, you feel uh, strapped. You feel like you can't um, make decisions that maybe you could make when you have that. And, Right now, I know with our net worth, with the retirement options that we have available to us, that we have that freedom of choice. So, in my mind, can I say that I'd be happy with $5 million? Absolutely. Um, I know when I was a younger man, I would have been ecstatic with a million. And here I am starting to click away over that. Or here we are, uh, me and my wife are clicking away over that. And I still want to keep accumulating um, and kind of build that comfortable lifestyle. Because I know as you do you're really only going to have more freedom of choice down the road. And and I really want to bring that to our family. I want to bring that freedom of choice um, where we can kind of go where our family takes us in the future. Yeah. Uh, yes or no, have you ever used a financial advisor? I haven't. And I may, like, again, trading that time, uh, trading money for time, I may in the future. And I encourage, um, I've had a couple of very close friends due to uncircum, uh, unfortunate circumstances come into large sums of life insurance money or that. And I've directed them all basically in the same direction. Um, they're, you know, what towards the, the financial advisor or financial firm. There's a few excellent ones out there. Um, there's few not so, but I've directed them in that. 
that direction because I know that they don't have the passion to learn about investing, to manage their own money without opening themselves up to significant risk. I know that I'm, I'm okay. I'm not taking undue risk at the moment, but down the road, I may say, you know what? It's worth, you know, a half percent to turn that over to somebody and not have to worry about it anymore and really take that step back. Yeah. Uh, last couple of questions here. What's household spending annually? Including loan payments and that sort of thing, household spending is around one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year. Like okay. you know, mortgage payments and things. Yeah, how much is the mortgage payment? I'm just wondering if we take that out. Uh, that would be the loan pay down portion of that is about twenty five thousand. Yeah, it's about twenty five thousand a year. And do you have any other debt beside the house? No, we don't. Uh, it's one of those things early on where neither neither my wife nor I were big debt. To, you know, we never incurred a lot of debt. Uh, whether it was a car loan, um, with, you know, I had to get car loans when I was younger. We would pay off those as quickly as possible. Um, we both were able to graduate college through work, through parents contributing some without much debt, if any debt. So from that point, we were able to build forward. And, and I remember I actually was in some credit card debt, um, because of the rental properties, um, at a certain point in time, that was back in kind of like the later 2000s, uh, a little bit. And I was in this credit card debt and it was just nagging at me and nagging at me. And, and I remember when I actually paid that off, paid that down. And I just kind of told myself, I would never go back to that. I would always make sure I had a buffer and it would have to take something kind of catastrophic to, and in which case you I think you could pad palette that a little bit easier than your own decisions driving you into debt. It's more like uh, the unexpected, hey, that that can happen in life, but the uh, the, the, the own decisions. So I didn't want to have any decision that I would make kind of drive us back into that. Yeah. Well, hey, Chris, thanks so much. We're appreciative of your time. We've, you know, we've taken enough of it. So everyone, again, that's Chris, net worth of $1.4 as a firefighter. Thanks so much for coming on the show, and thank you, obviously, for your public service. You benefit us directly, so really appreciate it. Thank you very much, guys. I appreciate it being here. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.